There's no denying the single-family rental market is hot right now. Last December in the United States, rents for single-family homes went up 12%. That's the biggest year-over-year rent increase in almost two decades. And not surprisingly, the sector is getting massive interest from investors. In fact, about 18% of all US homes are sold to investors right now. That's up from 8% 13 years ago. That's not something that everyone's thrilled about, to put it lightly. These are homes that would in the past be purchased by largely individuals, the very people who are finding home ownership increasingly out of their reach. Critics say with firms like Blackstone and BlackRock buying them, it's driving up prices and, at its worst, deepening wealth inequality. The counter-argument is that a professional landlord will run these homes better, provide renters a better product, and will meet shifting demands from a growing number of people who don't want the hassle and the burden of home ownership. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall, BizNow's New York City reporter. Today we're hearing from Samantha Kemp. She's the co-founder of Imo, a company that buys homes on behalf of large professional investors and runs those homes. She says she's well aware of the criticism and concerns that people have about institutional money flowing more freely into single-family rentals. And we talk about the pushback that's been seen in the US in just a moment. But she says by helping institutional capital into home ownership, it improves the kinds of homes that renters are accessing. And she says the residential real estate disruption is well overdue. We set up the business about four and a half years ago. So we are a technology-driven investment manager focused on the residential space, particularly the existing SFR space. And by existing SFR, I mean all the individual existing apartments and houses that are sort of pepper-potted around all the granular stock that typically get bought and sold and between consumers. Just like families, individuals who are buying and selling their own yeah, properties. Yeah, absolutely. Most of the stock that um, you, know, you and I live in. And you know, to date, investors, um, especially in Europe, have really only been, when they've been able, looking to access Resi, they've only been able to look at the build-to-rent space or the existing multifamily space. And the reality is that makes up less than 2% of the total Resi market, which means that 98% of the Resi market has, to date, been sort of overlooked by the institutional market. And understandably, it's been avoided because using traditional manual processes, it is completely inefficient to be able to source Um, underwrite and then manage and scale up these types of portfolios. But that's where the technology comes in. Um, The technology is able to remove those inefficiencies along the value chain and therefore unlock this asset class for institutions for the first time. And we also believe really um, passionately about bringing professional institutional capital into the existing SFR space because at the moment, um, the majority of rental stock in this um, market which is owned by the mom and pop investors they've never invested majority of them have never invested 
into these properties in the way that a professional landlord would and therefore the standards that are being offered um, the rent and the rental product that's being offered and the service that's being offered um, to consumers at the moment is is shocking and substandard and by being bringing professional institutional capital into that space we it's um, also our goal to be raising the living standards um, of what is offered um, to, to consumers in the market. What's changed that's allowed you to kind of create that kind of technology and go after that sort of market? If I'm really honest, a lot of the technology to build the foundations of the business is not super sophisticated technology from that right. space. It's not anything, it's not, it's not deep tech or anything like that. A lot of it is to do with um, workflow automations, automating your processes. A lot of it's about how you're collecting your data and therefore having the right data management systems in place so that the data can flow along the value chain and allow you to sort of automate those processes as well. So I think what really has changed though is especially over the past, especially with COVID, is people's openness to understanding what technology can do and you know being able to because I think so many people had biases against the existing SFR space because of the, as someone described it, the brain damage it typically creates with traditional manual processes. But now people are much more open to considering actually technology can remove the inefficiencies that exist in this value chain. And yeah, if you if you you know can remove them, why why shouldn't you be able to access and scale portfolios in this sector? So if I'm understanding it correctly, to put it really bluntly, you find the properties and help the institutional capital get to the properties via the various technological ways that the, you know, like the, the the leads and the listing systems, things like that. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So on, on as an example on the acquisitions end, we um, we set up our systems to essentially scrape the thousands of leads that get listed on for Zoom, rent for like um, on Zoom and stuff. Um, yeah, for well, the ones on the on the acquisition side, um, all the listings that get put up for sale oh, on the Zooplers, the right moves, um, or whatever the equivalents are in the in the various European markets. So we're accessing thousands of opportunities every single week. From that, we've developed our own AVMs that can then um, estimate what the target returns are for each of those properties which allows us to shortlist assets that have the potential to meet our target criteria and our target returns. And then we can go do an inspection on each of the properties. Uh, We've developed our own inspection app that allows us to capture over 300 data points for each property. All of those data points are then flowing into our underwrite models. And we've digitized our underwrite models so that about 80 to 90% of the underwrite process can now be automated. And the remaining 10 to 20% requires human involvement. It requires our acquisition manager to get involved, but that's really more from an oversight perspective. An example of some parts of the model that's um, automated is, for example, when we're calculating our CapEx or refurb budgets, the data that we captured during the inspection um, by taking the square footage of the property, the number of rooms, the ceiling height, you can automatically calculate the surface area of the walls and therefore know how much it's going to cost to paint that property. And obviously that's just one tiny line item, but if every item in your CapEx budget, all your the forecasting of your OPEX budgets, maintenance require, uh, requirements down the line, um, you know, all of those can, those calculations can be automated. Um, we've also developed machine learning tools that allow us to select the best comps mm-hmm. uh, for pricing on the on the sale and the rents. 
so yeah, there's, there's so many areas where the technology is allowing us to remove those inefficiencies and the long-winded processes that typically exist. And so the underwriting process, what would typically take days, if not weeks, to underwrite a single asset, it now takes us less than an hour and a half to do that. So you see where the efficiencies come and that really enables you to multiply and replicate that process thousands of times very efficiently. So do you own the properties on behalf of the institutional capital? Is that how it works? Yeah, so at the moment we um, we have been JVing with institutional um, investors um, and we've um, just within the past six months we've raised about six billion euros to be deploying into the European markets and then we've got about another two or three billion in the pipeline that um, we're, we're sort of working on at the moment. But yeah, so we JV with those partners and then um, yeah, we buy assets, we agree what the target locations are, the target criteria, target returns, um, and then we source assets on that basis and they go straight into the JV SPV and then we manage them on a long-term basis as well. So where do you own and where do you want to own? Where do we own? So we are mainly um, mainly operational in Germany at the moment. We're scaling across Germany into multiple cities at the moment. We've also just opened our office in in Spain. So we are going to be we're going to be starting to buy in Spain as well. We are also going to start buying in the UK later this year as well. But the beauty of this model is that it works anywhere that there's a liquid rental market. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on um, you know, what the regulations are around planning or the availability of land or um, you know, how expensive that land is. You know, as long as there's a liquid rental market at, you know, at that end of the value chain, you can buy assets and renovate them and, and, uh, and rent them out. There's a little bit of a cultural difference, though, because places like Germany and and I don't really know about Spain, but I think in Germany there has been people are conditioned to the concept of yeah. renting for long yes. periods of time, mm. whereas in places like the UK and the US, people are quite panicked by that concept mm. in a way. Yeah, no, you're right. In Germany, I think the average lease length is um, between seven and ten years. Which is extraordinary. It a, is, it <laughs> is. To a US or a UK. Yeah. <laughs> it is, um, because, yeah, a lot of people are really obsessed with, with home ownership. Um, mm. So, yeah, the rates, the rates, the home ownership rates are obviously a lot higher in places like Spain and, and the UK um, relative to Germany. However, that's changing. You know, there's more and more, more and more people choosing to rent. A lot of it is driven by affordability, um, if I'm honest, and you know, a lot of people just can't afford to, to buy, buy homes anymore. But there's also an increasing number of, um, if you look at the trends as well, there's an increasing number of people who choose to rent, not because they can't afford to buy, but because they don't want to have to pay stamp duty and they want to have that flexibility of if you know they're they're climbing the career ladder and they've got more income in five years time they want to be able to upgrade their house and they don't want to have to go through that whole process again of selling their home paying stamp duty again um, you know they want to have the security of um, the potential and the certainty that if they wanted to stay in their home longer term they could and they can you know it's still their home they can customize it how they how they wish um, but they also have the flexibility to be able to move and upgrade um, either within the same location or maybe move to a completely different location. Um, so we're seeing huge sort of shifts 
in mindset from that perspective. Is that a shift in mindset really because they want to or they just have to kind of shift their mindset to keep up with the fact that most people can't really afford to buy in the same ways that generations before us did, like our parents did? Yeah, so part of it is that, but I think also just globalization generations wanting to travel more um, people you know and this isn't even just in the housing sector you look at um, heavy assets um, sectors there's an increasing um, like increasingly fewer um, people wanting to buy fewer sort of heavy assets like cars for example I mean that's just it's sort of like who in London who wants to who wants to own a car and if you don't have to own a car or you have the option to be able to rent a car very easily, um, you know, and w- w- that is affordable. Yeah. Why wouldn't you do that? I guess the difference though is a car goes down in value, whereas a house goes up. Yeah, no, no, no. I do agree with that. Um, and one of the things that we are working on at the moment is creating um, some sort of investment product alongside um, our rental product, where part of the what we're looking to do is where part of the um, part of your rent goes into an investment product so that you actually benefit from the uplift and value of the market that you're living in um, so that it's it's a smarter way to spend your rent. There's been a lot of backlash in the US to this concept. Mm. It's being viewed as sort of like a sinister thing mm. that institutions want to get into what have typically been homes that have been owned by mums and dads or, yeah. or families um, and I guess a lot of that is connected to the fact that real estate home ownership is the number one way that people have built wealth in the past what do you think about that um, and do you think that's something that you need to overcome or that's something that just is changing and needs to change people aren't just aren't as focused on saving in the same way but also people when they do choose to save they want to have options to do it in a way that's more modern. So that's why you see the rise in all these, you know, trading platforms that yeah, allow people to, de- you know, develop their own their own investments, like their own share portfolios. Their own share portfolios, their own trading strategies, things like that. I mean, that's why those options are so popular because it's, you know, people do also, you know, it's not that people aren't focused at all on um, planning for the future. Planning for the future. Um, but it's just not about you know doing it in the traditional ways that our parents may have done, where they're putting all their money into pension pots and putting all their money into into housing, which is a liquid. People are choosing to do more kind of interesting, um, innovative um, sort of strategies mm-hmm. with their money. Are you are you worried at all though about the the kind of the negative? connotations that are swirling around in the US. I mean, I was just listening the other day about Cincinnati, a town, in, mm. which is a town in Ohio, a, a corporation pushing back against Blackstone coming in and buying properties. I mean, do you think that's going to take hold in the UK at all? Potentially. In Germany, it's there's a lot of negativity around professional landlords already. Really? So, um, yeah, so this is not... And I think it's probably actually worse in Germany than it is in the US. So... Given that's our main market at the moment, that's not something that we've um, had a problem with yet. Yeah, had a problem with yes, and and we haven't we haven't shied away from the debates though. I think we've leaned into the debates mm-hmm. and we completely understand people's concerns and we completely um, agree that you know some of the practices that professional landlords have adopted are not right. Um, and we want to do things differently. And I think that's where we've come at this very much with a consumer-first mindset. 
we've not come at this with a traditional real estate hat of let's you know analyze all the returns and see how we can squeeze down the opex and you know push up the rents as high as possible and you know in fact a lot of the markets we operate in in Germany have rent control in place and uh, which typically terrifies in, like come institutions and professional landlords but we say it's fine um, you know we abide by rent control um, in all of the markets we operate so which actually means our rents are often below market um, because rent control levels often sit below what the, the mom and pop landlords are renting their properties out at so um, if yeah if our properties are still able to meet the target returns and because that's the point we've scanned thousands of properties to be able to identify and cherry pick the assets that do still meet target returns whilst complying with all the um, sort of regulations and rent control frameworks that are in place. Um, so actually it benefits the institutions because uh, that we work with because because our rents are often below markets, um, our voids are almost zero. Wow. Um, so we're able to actually rent out faster. We listed two properties um, a couple of weeks ago and within 48 hours we had over 400 inquiries. Wow. Because they were seen, they were great quality properties, and they were below market. How um, how convincing do you think the um, the argument it will be that you know this is going to be a better renting experience for you? I'm just thinking from what I know in New York, renting in New York, you sometimes go around and you see these properties, and you're just thinking this is you need to put some lights on in the lobby, you need to fix the banisters, and these aren't you know. These aren't mum and dads. These are very well-capitalised major landlords. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if there's going to be a little bit of scepticism when you push that concept. And that's the same as what happens in Europe, in Germany. Um, the same, the professional landlords get criticised for not investing in, in the properties enough. Um, and it's tough, right, for some of those, I don't know the exact situation in New York, but in, in Germany, there's there's a lot of multifamily stock, for example, where the tenants um, are on these old legacy contracts paying very, very low rents, like yeah, five euros, yeah. six euros <laughs> per square meter. And, yeah, and, um, and therefore, it's very hard for the investor to be able to, from a you know return on investment, return on cost perspective, justify... Um, the investment um, doesn't mean that's the excuse, but it's that's the kind of struggle and the challenges that they're facing. Um, with us, though, like I said, every single um, you know, we're able to assess thousands of properties and find the ones that um, will hit the target returns, while still, you know, being a good landlord, investing in the property, upgrading it to a good standard, staying within rent control. So. If you try to just buy the entire market, of course you're going to um, end up acquiring a lot of properties that face exactly the same issues that you're talking about. But when you can scan the entire market and identify the ones um, that, you know, the stars sort of align on those ones, all the various dynamics of what discount you can potentially buy it at, um, what the rental level is, what the capex, amount of capex is, what the opex is, for, when all those pieces come together and you can still get your target return. Um, and, and that happens a lot because they said you're scouring for thousands and thousands of leads. You will find quite a few properties in there that do meet uh, 
requirements. So, so you said you're in Germany, Spain, looking at the UK. What about US? What's the plan there? VC backers and also the institute, the JV institution partners that we work with, they would love for us to um, expand to the US as well. I think we're focused on Europe at the moment. Um, there's a lot more European markets um, we can expand to um, first, mm-hmm. um, and then and then look to move to the states. There's a lot of people doing SFR in the states already. Obviously, there's there's not really anyone doing it in the way that we're doing it in Europe. So um, we're happy to stay in Europe and sort of spread our wings here and and then sort of look to um, sort of further afield geographies a bit further down the line. And one last question. Um, ESG is the big, it's such a big discussion in the development world, um, yeah. built environment world now. I mean, what... Um, what kind of thought or responsibility do you think a company like yours has in terms of putting, I don't know, carbon um, oh, benchmarks in place? It's got huge responsibility. Um, I mean, just all of our capex, for example, we, you know, we've agreed ESG capex standards um, with all of our um, with all of our partners, and so every every um, every renovation we do is sort of to to ESG standards. But what's great about existing SFR that it's actually inherently, the, the strategy is inherently ESG focused. Um, the, from an environmental perspective, um, the RICS published a report last year that um, said about, I think it was 52 or 53% of a residential property's life cycle carbon emissions are emitted before the residents, the first resident has even moved in which is huge, given a property is meant to last like 100 years plus or whatever, right? It's not that um, I'm advocating for less, um, less construction because there's obviously chronic undersupply of, of homes, um, you know, not just in the UK, but in Europe and the US. Um, so we need new homes, but it's, it's wrong to think that a new build that has solar panels and insulation and double glazed windows is automatically the most ESG environmentally friendly um, option for investing into resi. Whereas when you take existing stock, the greenest building is the building that already exists. So it's so important to be um, retrofitting and um, sort of repurposing existing stock. And that's not just in resi, that's that's across the commercial real estate sectors. It's really important. Um, And I think if, and we see that as a huge responsibility because as I mentioned earlier, only what institutions are currently targeting with built to rent and existing multifamily, that's only 2% of the market. And if as an industry we are genuinely focused about um, our contribution to um, you know, net zero goals and targets, the reality is we're not going to have any impact if we're targeting 2% of the market. We need to be focusing on how we can help the remaining 98%, how we can you know, potentially take some of that stock from the mom and pops who are completely under-investing in the properties and think about how we upgrade that existing stock and make that existing stock um, more, um, more eco-friendly. Yeah, and why haven't they been doing that, do you think? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's, um, you know, they're not managing their properties as efficiently as they could be because they don't have the right processes in place, the managing agents are taking too large a cuts out of it. Um, so the cost, you know, they're just any pricing of works, they're only getting a quote for 
one property mm. as opposed to obviously if you're trying to upgrade um, hundreds if not thousands of properties you can you can get bulk contracts you can be more commercial in your negotiations around the costings and everything like that so um, you know the institutional the professional landlords are able to upgrade these properties a lot more efficiently um, than the mom and pop landlords will will ever be able to do you ever get pushback from someone who's trying to I mean do you ever like have to outbid against a I'm just kind of thinking of these sort of... Yeah, in the US as well, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of criticism about yeah. um, driving well, pe- up the market yeah. prices and things Well, like people that. going, you know, young couples going to it by their first home and they're being outbid by Blackstone or whatever. Like, it's yeah, not... Yeah, so we, um, we actually... We never um, sort of end up in bidding wars, really, um, because we are... Like I said, every single underwrite we do is very focused on um, what the target returns are. And because we, um, the types of capital that we work with, who are very conservative, pension fund driven, it's very conservative pension driven money, um, you know, the governance standards around that, the reputational concerns, all of those things are are absolutely paramount and have been in discussions since, you know, the first meetings. So, um, you know, we also make sure that we are never um, purchasing a property above market value. Um, And especially in the hot markets, the market value on paper, when you look at all the comps, is often a little bit less than what people in the market are actually bidding because, you know, your your comps database is historical. Obviously, it's not not always as up to date as what is actually happening in that moment in the market. So we often end up bidding um, a bit below what the what the market is and and you know we frequently (laughs) for months we frequently have um sellers saying to us your price isn't the highest um and we say that's fine good luck um with your other other bidders in that case and um quite often we have people come back to us because the other bidders fell through um they weren't able to get their mortgages in place or they just they changed their mind last minute and they didn't they ended up finding another property and the seller will come back to us and say you know are you still willing to buy that price i can't i've you know i'm in a chain i need to i need to move already so um you know the convenient for the convenience factor of the convenience and the certainty that we can provide sellers um, that often means that we are able to buy properties at a bit of a discount, um, but yeah. So we're not we're not competing with um, you know people who are really desperately wanting to buy that home. Has it ever been? Um, have you ever had sellers um, kind of push back against the concept of selling to you? Because have they got in their heads, oh, I'll be selling to a family and the family will live here? And um, Occasionally. Um, and we've, we've put a lot of effort into our sort of marketing and branding and um, all of our um, people on the ground who deal with the sellers. Um, they they're sort of, they, they make sure they build the relationship with the sellers to understand that we're not a typical um, sort of, the, we're not the bad landlords that yeah. they might typically associate a professional landlord as being and we really educate them about how we are a very consumer first um, business and even if they want to sell to a family well if they sell to us we're renting to a family we're giving the opportunity for someone to live in that property who couldn't afford potentially to buy that property Um, so I think you know as we start building our brand um, and we start getting more track record and we getting start getting more and more positive reviews and our, our NPS score is super high um, compared to um, Net Promoter Score. 
so it's an assessment of, um, sort of consumer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the real estate industry as a whole has a negative NPS score. Um, <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Ours is at, I think our last surveys was up at 64 mm. points. And that, you know, Apple, for example, is up in the 40s. Mm. Um, so, you know, we, our NPS score shows our ca customer satisfaction um, from, our, from our residents is super high, which I think speaks for itself. And I think as we buy more assets, as we rent out more assets, um, you know, the results and the consumer feedback will um, speak for itself. It's so funny, I think about housing all the time. It's interesting because housing is so emotional, but mm. it's also an asset class. Yeah. It's emotional and it's connected to like a basic human need for shelter. Of course. And it's also about money. I mean, didn't you say it's a residential, it's the biggest asset in the class in the yeah. world? Yeah, it's the biggest asset class in the world. It's um, it is the biggest asset class in the world, but it's um, it's so unprofessionalized, and by that I don't mean um, you know just having lots of investors piling into it. I mean the fact that it makes no sense that you can go buy a coffee for two or three pounds from Starbucks, from Pretz, wherever it is, and um, you know you're getting a decent on on the scale of coffee quality yeah. <laughs> on the scale of co coffee quality right it's it's you know it's not the worst coffee it's not a premium it's um, predictable. but it's predictable it's certain you know what you're getting it's a standardized product it's a standardized service um, that you're getting with it if something goes wrong you know if your orders been gotten wrong you just take it back and they'll replace it and there'll hopefully be a smile mm -hmm. on the other side of the counter as well whereas it's the complete opposite experience with housing which makes no sense when it's the largest single expense of your life every month is your housing and in return you get a crap product because that's ultimately what your house is it's a product it's a very high value consumer product but it's still a consumer product um, so you often get a terrible product and you get a crap service from whether it's you know your landlord or the or the managing agents you you know you just don't get this, the consumer service that you would expect with every other category has already pretty much been disrupted where people are thinking much more consumer first how can we service how can we serve the consumer how can we raise the standards for consumers um, and that just hasn't happened in the housing sector and that's what we're really passionate about that's why um, you know when we built the business even at, at the very beginning I was the only real estate person for the longest time now we have lots of other people from BlackRock, AEW, um, you know Goldman so you know we've we've got a lot of real estate people on board now but you know we were really um, very adamant that we come at this not with all the traditional biases that exist within the real estate investment um, world. We wanted to come at this with a fresh pair of eyes, thinking about this from a consumer first um, mindset, take as many learnings as we can from the consumer world and apply them um, to the housing sector. Do you think this is a time of great disruption then? This might be a new era. I hope so, I really hope so. I mean, housing is obviously, it's well, not just housing, but real estate, it's a, it's a heavy, chunky, slow moving physical asset. So there is, it's that is why it hasn't been disrupted and it is harder to disrupt the um the barriers to entry are obviously a lot harder for this um sector uh, or category than than other other categories but um but it's it's coming and as more 
non-traditional real estate people are looking at this and wanting to solve big problems and big challenges, um, yeah, having the right mindsets and the right people looking to solve those problems, um, it's really exciting what's, what's happening at the moment. That's Samantha Kemp. She's the co-founder of IMO. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm Business New York City reporter. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're interested in reading more about single family rentals and the market, uh, head to our website, biznow.com. I'll leave links to some of the stories that we've done about single family rentals in the program notes.